The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone. My name is Mike Nabokowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. Today we celebrate a birthday. I heard today was your birthday. On April 17, 1982, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms came into force. That was 41 years ago today. One section, Section 15, the provision dealing with equality before and under the law, and equal protection and benefit of the law, came into effect three years later. This delay provided governments the time and opportunity to bring their laws into line with the equality rights guaranteed in Section 15. Since the Charter became law, the courts have been interpreting it and considering how it impacts Canadian law, and they have struggled in doing so. Last year, in 2022, the Supreme Court of Canada couldn't even agree on some well-established rights and how they apply to the circumstances. For example, in R.V. Alley, a strip search case, four judges found the strip search of a man arrested for drug trafficking was reasonable under Section 8 of the Charter, while one judge of the same court found the strip search unreasonable. In R.V. Stairs, five judges found the safety search, consisting of a visual clearing sweep of a living room from which a man and suspected assault victim had just emerged, and was adjacent to where the man was arrested, was charter compliant as a search incident to arrest, but four judges found this very same search to be unconstitutional. In RV La France, five judges found the accused had been detained under the charter when the police executed a search warrant at his residence, while four judges found he had not been detained. And in RV Beaver, five judges found the police had the requisite reasonable grounds to arrest the accused, while four did not. That was an important finding because a lawful arrest, one that requires reasonable grounds for belief, will not be arbitrary under Section 9 of the Charter. These are but a few examples over the years where Canada's highest court has been unable to agree on the application of the law to a particular circumstance. And you need to factor into this analysis that, in 2022, the judges of the Supreme Court took on average 4.6 months to make their decision from the time an appeal was heard until they rendered their judgment. 4.6 months is the equivalent of about 140 days, and each judge can select up to three law clerks per year. According to the Supreme Court of Canada's own website, the duties of law clerks include reviewing case files, researching specific legal issues before and after hearings, discussing and analyzing the legal issues emerging from the cases with the judge, and assisting in the preparation and editing of judgments. Wouldn't it be nice if you had at least a day or even an hour to make your decision about whether you were going to make a detention, arrest, or search on the street in the midst of an active investigation, and three other trained people to help you with your decision? We know that isn't going to happen. 
So if it's not that easy for the Supreme Court of Canada to apply the law to the facts as found, despite having an inordinate amount of time to do so, written factums from the litigants to consider, oral arguments from the parties involved, and a team of researchers to help, and even then they don't always agree, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand how challenging and difficult it can be to apply developing jurisprudence to the myriad of circumstances that arise on the street. And there certainly is no benefit of hindsight. But that is exactly what the police must do. It is their duty to take constitutional concepts and principles, many times expressed in the abstract, like the right to privacy, and apply them to daily reality, in real time, often in a heartbeat, with little time for reflection, second opinion, or timeouts. And add to that, the decision a police officer makes on the street is one that they and others must live with. And some of these decisions can have devastating consequences. I am reminded of the quote I once heard, doctors bury their mistakes, lawyers send theirs to prison, police officers do a little of both. But no matter how you slice it, it is a very special person who is willing to step up and take on this challenge, running towards the danger, not away from it, all the while considering not only the law, but tactics and safety. Not only their own safety, but the safety of others, including the target of or suspect in their investigation. Now for a fun fact, Every cop should be familiar with the right to counsel guaranteed by Section 10B. You are likely issued a card that you can use to read to a detainee or arrestee that includes all of the necessary information that is being interpreted by the courts as being a requirement that needs to be communicated upon arrest or detention. But some of you may not know that the Charter went through several drafts before it became the version you see today. For example, the federal draft of October 1979 read as follows. Section 6, Sub 1, Sub D, Sub I. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of his or her person, and the right not to be deprived thereof except by due process of law, which process encompasses the following. The right on arrest or detention to be provided with the opportunity to retain and consult counsel without delay. So the right to counsel was once contained in Section 6, as it was then drafted. Then, in August 1980, the federal draft read as follows. Section 10b. Everyone has the right on arrest or detention to retain and instruct counsel without delay. The September 1980 federal draft then said this. Section 9b. Everyone has the right on arrest or detention to retain and instruct counsel without delay. Now let me read that again. Everyone has the right on arrest or detention to retain and instruct counsel without delay. Do you notice something missing? There is no requirement that the police tell the person that the right exists. I'll read it again. Everyone has the right on arrest or detention to retain and instruct counsel without delay. So what happened? Well, as a result of this draft, people were allowed to comment. It is believed that the participation of certain groups influenced the final charter text. John Chrétien, later to become the Prime Minister of Canada, was the then Minister of Justice under Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau at the time. Here's an audio clip of John Chrétien explaining to the Joint Committee on the Constitution why an amendment to Section 10b was made. Some witnesses have made the point that while Section 10 guarantees the right on arrest or detention to retain and instruct counsel without delay, there is no explicit requirement for an individual to be informed of that right. I am prepared to accept an amendment so that the section will state that 
Everyone has the right on arrest or detention to retain and instruct counsel without delay and to be informed of that right. As you heard, it was recognized that the original draft provided the right to counsel on arrest or detention, but there was no requirement for police to tell the person of the right. So the only people who would be able to take advantage of the right to counsel would be the people who knew it existed. But the amendment changed that and made it a requirement that the person under detention or arrest expressly be advised of the right. Now that makes sense. How would you take advantage of a right if you did not know it existed? As a result, on February 13, 1981, the Minister of Justice tabled the Section 10B version as we know it today. Quote, everyone has the right on arrest or detention to retain and instruct counsel without delay and to be informed of that right. End quote. Of course, it's easy to read and have a general understanding of what Section 10B means, but as any police officer knows, there is a lot packed into those 22 words. There is an informational component, and if the right is invoked, an implementational component, and of course a temporal component to all of this. Sometimes a delay in telling a detainee about the right will be justified, other times not. And sometimes a delay in providing access to counsel will be justified, other times not. Depending on the circumstances of your case, if and when the right to counsel arises can be difficult to discern. Sometimes, it is easy, like when you knowingly make an arrest. Other times, not so easy, like when in your mind there is no detention, but two years later a court decides there was a detention, one of the psychological type. Just read your Section 10b Charter card today. Do you know what various words or phrases it contains were the result of case law decisions when Section 10b was argued in court? The first charter card I ever received simply stated this, quote, It is my duty to inform you that you have the right to retain and instruct counsel without delay, end quote. Today you will find this advisement has morphed to include information that the right can be exercised in private, that any lawyer the detainee wants can be called and that a legal aid duty lawyer is available to provide free advice. These additions were all in response to the court's interpretation of the Section 10b right. As a final thought, police officers need to be current on case law. I am reminded of the comments made by the Ontario Court of Justice in R.V. Foreman, 2022 ONCJ 214, about a 21-year police veteran's ignorance of her Section 10b duties. Quote, it is utterly unacceptable that an officer with her level of experience, whom the public can reasonably expect to detain and arrest suspects with some regularity, does not know of her obligation to immediately inform a suspect of their rights. It is equally unacceptable that she does not know of her obligation to implement the suspect's rights at the first reasonably available opportunity. End quote. The judge found the officer's long-term failure to understand her Section 10b obligations placed her conduct closer to the brazen disregard end of the spectrum of seriousness in the Section 24.2 inquiry. How can it be that an officer could be so misinformed? I think the officer must wear their ignorance, but so too must their agency. In R.V. Landry, 2020, NBCA 72, another Section 10b charter case, the New Brunswick Court of Appeal found the police breached Landry's right to counsel on two occasions. In evaluating the admissibility of evidence under Section 24.2, the Court of Appeal had this to say about the officer's conduct. Quote, the police officer testified he acted in accordance with his usual practice, but there is no evidence he engaged in conduct he believed was required by law. 
I cannot conceive that the RCMP, with all its resources and means of communicating with its members, would not have alerted its members about how they should conduct themselves, especially in light of the fact that the expected conduct was established by Canada's highest court more than 30 years ago. End quote. What I get from these comments by the Court of Appeal is that training and education is key. Police officers must make reasoned decisions by turning their mind to the action they are about to take. This won't be easy. Your job involves assessing competing and conflicting interests. Individual rights and liberties weighed against society's interest in effective law enforcement. Your challenge will be to enforce the laws within the area where the boundaries on personal freedoms and the public interest intersect. You must weigh your two obligations to the public, to protect and to respect. Protecting the public by investigating crime, enforcing the law, and apprehending offenders while at the same time respecting individual rights. Your duty to protect may oblige you to take coercive action, such as detention, arrest, search, using force, while your duty to respect obliges your action not to be arbitrary, unreasonable, or without justification. If you do not act with a justifiable legal basis or a legitimate purpose or aim in mind, interference with a person's liberty, security, or privacy will result in a charter violation with its attendant consequences. Although you are not expected to be a lawyer, you should have a good understanding of the legal frameworks related to your police powers. Remember too, just because you have a duty to do something, like investigate crime, doesn't mean you are empowered to take any and all action to perform the duty. Your powers are not unbridled or unlimited. By understanding the framework related to a power, you can turn your mind to the legal requirements and do your best to apply the rules to the facts as you find them. Not only will a working knowledge of the law provide confidence, increasing your legal acumen and understanding with proper training can lead to your performance meeting the level of what the courts and the public expect of you. This can result in rules being followed or, if you misapply the rules, may demonstrate to a court that you were acting in good faith. You tried to get it right. Although your good faith will not cleanse a charter breach, it could rescue evidence obtained in a manner that breached a right from exclusion. This will then further society's interest in a case being decided on its merits. There is no doubt police officers work in a fishbowl. Their actions will be placed under a microscope. Knowing this, police officers can prepare themselves for the inevitable. This includes rigorous judicial scrutiny, professional accountability, media exposure, and public attention. Crime stories lead the nightly news, and the police profession has a great opportunity for always improving. But training and education is more than just telling someone to do something. Police officers have to understand the rules in order to follow them. There is no doubt that some officers have tarnished the badge for their conduct, some deliberate, some accidental but we can lean in, learn, and strive to do better. After all, you are the one that must account for your actions. The Crown can't provide your grounds for acting, even if it might be obvious to all. Nor can a judge fill in the legal gaps for you. And your mindset matters. But before you can turn your mind to a legal authority, you must have one in mind. This requires knowledge, thought, and focus. Where the attention goes, the energy flows. Individually and collectively, we must develop a growth mindset. Train the brain. But that takes effort. To you, my listener, the fact that you take the time and energy to tune in shows the high level of dedication and caliber of people working in law enforcement. This is one of the most challenging careers that many see as a calling. For those of you that have made the choice to pursue this profession, thank you for all that you do.
If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. Or maybe you feel like providing me with some feedback. Either way, I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.